I'm Natasha Faroz and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Katie Balls, who writes about Boris's plan to divide and conquer. James Heal writes on the new war of political broadcasting. And Melissa Kite on the politics of horse muck. First up is Katie Balls. Boris Johnson has never quite been able to decide whether he wants to be a great unifier or a great divider. Does he want to govern like he did at City Hall, the generous-hearted, loving mayor of London as he once described himself? Or is his best chance for re-election a return to the Brexit-style walls that landed him Downing Street? These days there are plenty of signs that the government is in fight mode. The Prime Minister is risking a trade war with Brussels with threats to unilaterally rewrite the Northern Ireland Protocol going to battle with civil servants over homeworking and planning to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda. Johnson can see the pros to a public fight. In the summer of 2019, he used the prorogation in Parliament to appeal to Leave voters ahead of an election. He's already made a virtue of opposition to the Home Office Rwanda plan, hitting out lefty lawyers trying to thwart the migration crackdown. There are some in government who go so far as to think the policy will be most popular with the public if it ends up being blocked by the courts or House of Lords. Regardless, Johnson's Deputy Chief of Staff, David Canzini, looking ahead to the next general election, has heralded the plan as an ideal wedge issue. Aides have been ordered to find more policies in the departments that divide the opposition. It's not just Keir Starmer who the Tories want to put in a tight spot. After the Liberal Democrats took twice as many council seats from the Tories as Labour in this month's local elections, the Conservatives are looking for issues that divide Ed Davies' base. It's about the people who could switch between us and the Lib Dems, and what could make them waver, says an advisor. For all the fighting talk, there's concern growing in parts of government that some of these battles could be more bother than they're worth. After a war of words on the government's plan to rewrite parts of the protocol, figures in number 10 hit out at the Foreign Secretary in Canzini. One government official has complained in the media that the object of the exercise with some people seems to be to have a fight, as opposed to restoring the power-sharing executive in Northern Ireland. When Liz Truss finally unveiled the plans to Parliament, the rhetoric she used was tougher than Johnson's. Her approach is largely winning support among MPs, for now ahead of the Wakefield and Tiverton Honiton by-elections on the 23rd of June, the sixth anniversary of the Brexit vote. Both are leave seats, so talking tough is advantageous, says one MP. However, there is disagreement in government regarding whether Johnson ought to call the EU's bluff and override parts of the protocol, risking a chain of events that could lead to Brussels responding with trade sanctions. There are nerves in the Treasury that a miscalculation would lead to a worsening of the cost of living crisis. If that comes to pass, Truss may end up being the scapegoat. The blame her for getting the tone wrong, predicts one government advisor. One cabinet minister who backed leave has long been reluctant for Johnson to rewrite the protocol, given he has a history of changing his mind. If the EU retaliates and Johnson backs down, the UK would be in a weakened position. It's not just on Brexit where the appeal of a fight is meeting resistance. When the Cabinet met on an away day in Stoke last week, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Minister tasked with government efficiency, offered an update on his mission to return the number of civil servants to 2016 levels, which means reducing the workforce by 91,000. 
He explained to those assembled that his plan would begin with a recruitment freeze, which would include suspending the civil service fast stream, the scheme designed to attract top-level graduates. The notion led to such a frosty reaction from the cabinet, the prime minister intervened, telling ministers that he could see people wincing, but it was vital the government sent a strong message. What happened to securing the brightest and best, complains one cabinet minister. Latest thinking is that fast stream decisions will be delegated to departments. Johnson's chief of staff, Steve Barkley, has become an ordinate of civil servants. Aides are alarmed to learn that there are estimated to be around 700 working in HR in the Cabinet Office alone, and 80 still working on COP26, even though the summer ended in November. The UK does retain the presidency throughout the year. Yet, Rees-Mogg's tactics have led some ministers to question whether a crackdown on civil servants is a battle worth fighting. One warns that restructuring will waste a lot of civil servants' time to begin with and also risk bad blood. We do need to work for these people, says another senior minister. A recent photo stunt of Rees-Mogg sitting behind his desk, which features a carriage clock, writing paper and little else, misfired. How can you suggest you're the model of efficiency while refusing to use a laptop? Asked an advisor. There are concerns that an attack on working from home could isolate the very voters the Tories need to get on side. Working from home is quite popular with all the Lib Dem lot in the South. There are a lot of professional service people who have adopted it. We should be very careful before sagging all their work off, says one party figure who describes mog stunts as performative. Other upcoming fights include the privatisation of Channel 4, plans for a new BBC funding model, and a showdown with the rail unions about the summer strikes over pay. When it comes to disagreements in government over how aggressive to be, the biggest problem is everyone tends to think Johnson is on their side. The Prime Minister has a habit of making people think he disagrees with them, only to go on to change his mind. Johnson would do well to state his intentions. There is nothing more dangerous than starting a fight you are not prepared to finish. That was Katie Balls. Next, it's James Heal. It's hard to step outside nowadays without being confronted with a massive picture of Piers Morgan. In the adverts for his new talk TV show, he can be seen crushing the House of Commons in his hands or pointing to an address for the channel's complaints department. Love him or hate him, the adverts declare, you won't want to miss him. Actually, it seems people don't mind if they do. The last count, barely 40,000 tuned in. In contrast, Morgan's final appearance on Good Morning Britain drew almost 2 million viewers. So what's going on? One answer is that Talk TV, like any new channel, will take a while to establish itself. But the other point is that Piers Morgan Uncensored is vying with lots of other big-name chat show presenters across a variety of platforms for a limited amount of public attention. Buses, trains, roadside billboards and newspapers carry pictures of new shows for star broadcasters. A 30-foot picture of Andrew Marr proclaims that he's got his voice back via LBC Radio, which is pushing its breakfast showman, Nick Ferrari, just as hard. And Andrew Neil is back, his old BBC One show reincarnated on Channel 4 on Sunday evenings with almost 400,000 viewers. American-style programming that promotes individuals over institutions, like Jon Stewart or Jimmy Kimmel, seems to be coming to Britain. It was about this time last year that GB News first appeared on our TV screens. Neil was its frontman, but his show lasted for just a fortnight before he took a summer break and didn't come back. He said later that his vision for the broadcaster was at odds with what he saw as a British Fox News intent on waging a culture war. But GB News now seems to be finding its feet, with a monthly audience of more than 2 million, regularly overtaking Sky News. For its part, LBC is gunning for BBC listeners. LBC has snapped up Eddie Mayer, X-Radio 4, Sheila Fogarty, X-Radio 5, Andrew Marr, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. 
but it's a PR, not for audience, says one BBC figure. Global Media, LBC's owner, is Europe's largest independent radio company, so it wants to come and have a go at us. It's natural. But LBC is winning audience numbers too, 3.2 million a week against 10 million for Radio 4. Scheduling the new Andrew Marr show in the 6pm slot is a clear attempt to lure Radio 4 listeners. Overall, the traditional Radio 4 audience is straying in record numbers, which is why commercial radio has overtaken the BBC in audience figures. Global Media wants more, and is poaching BBC presenters who are reasonably affordable. When Tony Hall was BBC Director General, he said that salaries for newsmen should be kept low because there is no competitive market. Britain's roadside billboards suggest this is changing. Might British television be ready for the shake-up that Fox News once gave America? Of the 50 most-watched television shows here, every single one is from the BBC, ITV or Channel 4. Surely there is room for more competition. Rebecca Brooks, who runs Rupert Murdoch's News UK, has long been sceptical about the costs involved. She told staff in an email last year that, While there is consumer demand for alternative news provision, the costs of running a rolling news channel are considerable, and it is our assessment that the payback for our shareholders wouldn't be sufficient. Murdoch persuaded her to think again. He launched Times Radio two years ago and has a weekly reach of about 500,000. But we're happy, insists one of the Times Radio founders. It's a tool to market the Times. Radio is cheap and it's worth the money. It's perhaps more of a tool to retain readers. About two-thirds of Times Radio listeners already subscribe to the newspaper. Talk TV was finally launched by News UK to much fanfare last month, bolting a trio of new shows onto the existing talk radio station. Morgan, Sharon Osborne and the former Sun political editor Tom Newton-Dunn are the stars around which it is based. The early consensus of the pundits is that it's not a success. As initial interest has faded, there's been a corresponding drop-off in linear TV ratings. While executives publicly point to better worldwide online figures, privately some fear for the network's future. This is perhaps hardly surprising considering its inauspicious start. Despite News UK's riches and a flawless technical launch, insiders hint at a dysfunctional setup characterised by endless meetings, can shows and uncertainty about what talk TV is for. Murdoch is said to be relaxed, seeing the channel as a long-term project. A key point of internal contention concerns Talk TV's own identity. Is it catering to the tastes of Sun or Times readers? Both papers run nearly daily adverts promoting the same channel. Most of Talk TV's advertising has been built around Morgan, who is rumoured to be on a £50 million three-year deal. Of 65 TV adverts which ran in the Murdoch press over five weeks, 59 were for Morgan. People are going to tune in and be really surprised, not just by our balance and our total lack of right-wingery, says Newton Dunn. The big gamble of both GB News and Talk TV is on there being a future for a traditional TV station rather than a YouTube channel or other online platforms. The trends for younger age groups watching broadcast TV don't present many reasons to be optimistic. Ten years ago, people aged 16 to 24 spent almost three hours a day watching traditional TV. Now, it's barely an hour. Crucially, both channels have made the decision to focus on opinion and debate rather than news and analysis. This approach is cheaper, but it also feels more combative. Sure, more American. Could television in Britain be about to change? Already the Culture Secretary, Nadine Doris, has decided to privatise Channel 4, with the BBC licence fee likely to be abolished in 2027, if the Tories are still in power. A whole world of possibilities might yet be opened up. That was James Heal. And finally, Melissa Kite. Are you coming to help us poo-pick? said my friend Terry in a desperate-sounding voice message. The builder boyfriend and I were lying in the garden, having a well-earned sunbathe on Sunday, his only day off. Meanwhile, as we full well knew, the Builder Bee's fellow livery customers were hard at work shoveling horse muck out of the fields at the country estate where he's been grazing his two cobs until we can move them to be with my two horses at the new stable yard we've just taken a lease on. 
This mania for poo picking is all very well if you're talking about paddock maintenance. I'm out there with a shovel every day in the small private paddocks where we now keep my thoroughbred and pony. But when your horses are turned away in a herd with a dozen others in the vast parkland of an English country house, it's a different system. The farmer harrows the fields, the horses are wormed. You cannot feasibly pick up every poo by hand. It has to be mechanically worked in. The fields are rested and rotated. But the crazy horse-owning women don't like the look of poo, or rather, the dominant mare among them doesn't. And so this head of the herd put out a statement on the WhatsApp group, ordering everyone to turn up with shovels and flasks of coffee on Sunday to poo-pick 50 acres, which is only marginally more reasonable than if she had demanded they polish the blades of grass. Two customers out of about 15 said they'd be there. The rest offered a variety of excuses from working the late shift the night before to got to visit my mother along with sick relatives, last minute holidays and urgent business trips abroad. The builder B chose not to reply, holding firm to his belief that as there's nothing in his contract requiring him to remove the muck from the fields and as he pays top dollar for his horses to be in them, he was not going to be spending his only day off tending the land of the aristocracy on a volunteer basis. That morning we drove by the horses to check them and then made our way to the garden centre on the estate for a full English breakfast. On the way back down the drive, we looked into the fields again and saw a huge muck trailer being driven around by old bossy boots. A tiny woman, she was sitting atop a tractor imperiously on her phone. Following behind shoveling muck into the trailer were two or three of her fellow horse owners, including our friend Terry, shoveling away in his wellies as she shouted instructions at him while barking into her phone. No doubt she was ordering more people to turn up. What on earth is Terry thinking, said I, as the BB put his foot on the accelerator of his pickup truck before we could be spotted by the chief of the poo pickers. As we lay on our sun lounges later, the BB checked the WhatsApp group and started reading out the messages, which became more vicious as the afternoon wore on and the heat of the day became quite blistering. Here is a picture of a 70-year-old man shoveling shit said the boss lady, posting a photo of poor Terry as she questioned why so few had turned up. Our phones rang twice as a gasping Terry left voice messages demanding to know where we were. The BB couldn't resist it in the end, posting, You're doing a sterling job, you lot. Whereupon, of course, the venom was turned directly on him. No thanks to you. Where are you? I'm lying in my garden about to have a spot of lunch, said the BB. And he added that, by the way, the owner of the estate was last seen heading for the Michelin-star gastropub in the village in a red Mustang. I'm sure his lordship is delighted you're shoveling the muck out of the fields you pay him hundreds of pounds each to keep your horses in. The top mare then put her ears flat back and posted a series of excoriating comments, culminating in a diatribe about the condition of the crumbling estate, which has seen better days, but to be fair to the owners, is the subject of a massive ongoing restoration project. If you feel his lordship's estate is a mess, I suggest you tell him, posted the BB. No, wait, I've got a better idea. I'm going to forward this WhatsApp trail to the estate office. Attention, his lordship. And that was the last we heard from the dominant mare, who obviously did not fancy her chances against an enraged stallion. That was Melissa Kite.
And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.